Warning! The following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. What's going on? Just read that another show on Broadway is postponing shows. It's really got me down. Don't worry. It's only for a couple of days. I know, but it still got me down. You have to look on the bright side. This is a golden era for the understudy. We are about to see the amazing talents of a lot of people we normally don't get to see. Very, very true. They work so hard for this exact moment. Okay, you're right. Everything is going to be okay. And if you need more of a bright side moment, but almost in a dark comedy kind of way, this is much like the show you and I saw many, many moons ago. Ah! You're right. Okay, okay. Now I can see a little bit on the light side of this. It's all, It always gets a little easier when art imitates life. Well, I guess in this case, life imitating art. And welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are discussing the hilarious show, Lend Me a Tenor. So Harry, and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. Welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. La 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 la. <clears throat> hey, ah. Alright, we're all warmed up and ready to go, if the need arises. But for now, we're going to stay here with you and discuss the hilarious farce known as Lend Me a Tenor. The well-known show has been produced on Broadway twice, once in 1989 and again in 2010 which is the show we'll be focusing on. But to begin with, you know what we're going to do. Time to go back where it all began. Lend Me a Tenor is a comedy by Ken Ludwig. The play, originally titled Opera Buffa, had been produced at a summer theater, American Stage Festival, Milford, New Hampshire, in 1985. The first review in the New Hampshire Dairy News called it one of the most brilliant and inspired comedies this year. The English director, David Gilmore, read it and asked to direct. Andrew Lloyd Webber was the producer. The West End production opened on March 6th, 1986 at the Globe Theatre, where it ran for 10 months, closing on January 10th, 1987. It then made its big move to Broadway, where it was directed by Jerry Zaks. The show played at the Royal Theatre from March of 1989 to April of 1990 and starred, among others, Philip Bosco and Victor Garber. In 2010, the show would be revived with the design team as follows. 
directed by Stanley Tucci, scenic design by John Lee Beatty, costume design by Martin Pacladians, lighting design by Kenneth Posner, sound design by Peter Helensky, wig and hair design by Paul Huntley, makeup design by Joe DeLude II. The show would set up its grand theater at the Music Box Theater for 153 performances from April 4th to August 15th of 2010. That season, it would garner three Tony Award nominations. And with that, let us delve into our show. As scene one of the play opens, Henry Saunders, general manager of Cleveland Grand Opera Company is anxiously awaiting the arrival of Tito Morelli, a world-famous Italian opera tenor known as Il Stupendo, to many of his fans. Morelli is coming to Cleveland to sing the lead role in a performance of Giuseppe Verdi's Otello. It's the biggest event in the Cleveland Opera's history. A sellout crowd and the members of the Cleveland Opera Guild will be at the Opera House that evening to see the great Morelli. Saunders' hired assistant, Max, is also in the hotel suite. Saunders has charged Max with seeing to Morelli's needs and with getting Morelli to the opera house in time for the performance. There is also Maggie Saunders, Henry's daughter and Max's sometimes girlfriend. Maggie is a fan of Tito Morelli and hopes to meet him. Tito finally arrives at the hotel suite, accompanied by his hot-tempered Italian wife, Maria, who is jealous because Tito flirts with other women. When she finds Maggie hiding in the bedroom closet, trying to get Tito's autograph, Maria angrily assumes that Maggie is Tito's secret lover. Maria writes Tito a Dear John letter and leaves the hotel. In the sitting room, Max gives Tito a tranquilizer-laced drink, trying to calm him down before the performance. Unbeknownst to either of them, Tito accidentally takes a double dose of tranquilizers. When he learns that Max is an aspiring opera singer, Tito kindly kindly gives Max a singing lesson, teaching him to loosen up and sing with more confidence. Tito and Max sing a duet together. When Tito returns to the bedroom, he finds Maria's note. Horrified that his wife has left him, Tito goes into a fit of passion and tries to kill himself with various non-lethal objects, i.e. trying to stab himself with a wine bottle. Max manages to calm Tito down and takes the singer into the bedroom, where Tito lies down on the bed to rest. Much later, scene two, Max is unable to wake Tito from his nap. Max finds an empty medicine bottle and Maria's Dear John letter, which is written in such a way, By the time you read this, I will be gone. Then Max mistakenly thinks Tito has committed suicide. When Saunders arrives, Max tearfully tells him that Tito is dead. Saunders is furious. The opera performance will have to be canceled and the audience will demand for their money back. It will be a disaster for the Cleveland Opera and for Saunders himself. However, Saunders comes up with a plan. No one else knows that Tito is dead. Max will step into the Otello role and pretend to be Tito. Wearing Tito's costume and makeup, Max will star in the opera's performance. The audience will never know that it is not Tito Morelli, and they can announce Tito's death tomorrow morning. Max reluctantly agrees to the plan. He goes into the bathroom to change, 
and later returns dressed as Otello in a costume, wig, and blackface makeup. As the curtain falls on Act 1, Saunders and Max leave for the performance just as Tito wakes up in the bedroom. As the second act opens, Saunders and Max return to the hotel suite. Max's performance as Otello was a huge success, and no one suspected that he was not Tito. Then Saunders gets a phone call telling him that the police are downstairs in the lobby. They are looking for a lunatic dressed as Otella who thinks he's Tito Morelli. During Max's performance, the lunatic tried to force his way into the opera house, hit a policeman who tried to stop him, and ran away. Saunders tells Max to quickly change out of his Otello costume and makeup while he goes downstairs to handle the police. Max returns to the bedroom, but is shocked and horrified to find Tito is missing from the bed. Still wearing his Otello costume, Max leaves the hotel suite and runs to find Saunders. A few seconds later, Tito Morelli returns to the hotel suite, also dressed as Otello, in a costume, wig, and blackface makeup. Frantic and on the run from the police, Tito is even more confused when another char- when other characters in the play show up to congratulate him on his magnificent performance as Otello. For the rest of the play, Max and Tito, who are identical in their Otello costumes and makeup, are repeatedly mistaken for each other as they alternately, uh, alternately run in and out of the hotel suite. Max is mistaken for Tito, and Tito is mistaken for Max by Saunders. Also, Tito and Max both find themselves being romantically pursued by Maggie Saunders and by Diana, the Cleveland Opera's sexy and ambitious soprano. Eventually, Diana seduces Tito into the bedroom, while Maggie simultaneously seduces Max, who she thinks is Tito, in the living room. At the end of the play, things are sorted out. Maria returns to the hotel and makes up with the bewildered Tito, while Max manages to step into the bathroom long enough to change out of his Otello costume and wig and emerges himself. Tito and Maria leave together while Saunders accompanies Diana to a downstairs reception. Maggie realizes that not only was Max the Tito that she made love to, he is also the Tito who sang so passionately in tonight's opera performance. As the play closes, Max and Maggie share a kiss. The The end. end. Now let's discuss the parts we like and the parts we don't like and all the things. We'll discuss all the things. All the things. I think the script is absolutely hilarious oh my gosh like uh every time i see this uh my cheeks hurt from laughing yeah it's it's your simple layout of a farce like when you Mm -hmm. look at it you know mistaken identity running out of rooms it's that slapstick it's very like how can this be so funny but no it's, it's hilarious the comedic timing was perfect amongst all the actors. And keep in mind, we're talking about the 2010 revival. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the comedic timing amongst all the actors is just... And that's what really sells this, is, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to have the right characters doing everything in the right time. Saunders has got to be a fast-talking guy. You have to have all the entrances. You have to have Max being super panicky. You have to have the sexual tension. Yep. All the entrances and everything have to make sense. All of the, you know, the the... The slapstick physical comedy has to be right on cue. If anything's amiss, it's, it's, it fails. 
And speaking of slapstick, the physical comedy was truly on point, especially the pratfalls, you know. Oh, God, yes. I love the attempted suicide of the wine bottle. This is the end! Uh, uh. And it's not even... And he's, like, it's... stabbing himself, and then, oh, and he throws the bottle, and it shatters, and he gets all scared about it, and it's like, I mean, yeah. It, and, and they use the rule of three really well, where... You know, after after you do something three times, it's no longer funny, mm-hmm. but it should escalate, mm-hmm. and it does. You know, they repeat something three times, and it just escalates, and it's, yeah, it was comedic genius, and to no surprise, Stanley Tucci directed it, and mm-hmm. he knows comedy. Um, so let's break it down a little bit more. The set. The gorgeous. set was gorgeous. It filled the stage. Oh, it was grand, elaborate, huge, just and, gorgeous. And... and, and you know, we've in a lot of shows when we talk about the set. You know, we mentioned that they use just a couple of things to, you know, uh, to set up that space. But mm-hmm. in this particular instance, the entire stage was filled with the set, which makes sense because we didn't change. Like there was no big right. Set we changes. were in the hotel, the hotel suite the, the whole time. time. Yeah, um, and it and like I said, it took place in two rooms: the living room and the bedroom of the hotel. But it was so ornate. Detail. I know what's I find crazy is opera singers live in this like luxurious dripping refinement stuff like this and I'm like And we live like in you know I know and I like run down hotels, like, the roadway in or something right, like that. Like, like the way the actors live, like I'm like I just Four to a room. Meanwhile, the the opera singer that's doing like three shows, no, I shouldn't diss opera singers. No, they're really amazingly is. incredibly talented. It's just like Opera is synonymous with dripping in luxury. Yes. And I love the classic feel to everything. It had um, the New York, and I say that like in quotes, you know, for the time, the New York feel to it, which was perfect for being in Cleveland. I feel like at that time, New York was the gold standard of like luxury and everything for any season, for, for any city. Mm-hmm. So like if you were trying to be luxurious or whatnot, you were going for a New York feel. Um, and I, and I felt like that really came across. Speaking of which, I was just thinking about this. Have you ever noticed how many shows, if they're not in New York, they're in Ohio? Yeah. Or they mention Ohio. There's got to be, I mean, Ohio. That's, Ohio. What is and it about it? When, when I drove out here, I got to tell you, now look, I'm, I'm a Cleveland sports fan. Go, go Browns and Guardians. That's it. But I drove across Ohio with our stuff. We moved here and I got to be honest, I don't understand it. Like, the fact that they're like, we're not going to be based in New York. We're going to be based in Ohio. And no disrespect to Ohio. Because I have been to other places besides, you know, the Ohio Turnpike. And it is beautiful. On the way to Cedar Point in the fall. Oh, my God. It's beautiful. But I was just thinking. I'm like, why is every show based in Ohio? Particularly Cleveland. And I'm like, yeah, all right. But I guess, like, where else are you going to base it? You know? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I, we're from Salt Lake. And I can't imagine this being based in Salt Lake. <laughs> Yeah, no. who's gonna try to kill themselves with a wine bottle? There, I'm gonna kill myself with a gallon of milk. Uh. <laughs> anyway, back to my point. It looked like a New York style hotel. Right. Well, and I mean, the show takes place, I think, in the 1930s, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. And 30s, so 40s. Everything 30s and 40s was also very New York. New York. Um. I, I also. I, I mean, while we're on it, we might as well just jump to the lighting. We should jump to the lighting. Um, the lighting was very simple. Yes. In the best way possible. I liked... 
Okay, this is. Uh, tell me if, if this makes sense. I like that the lighting gave the show like this noir effect, like it it didn't make it too bright or sharp, but it also wasn't that like dim, like too soft thing. It just gave it that like timely. Realistic? Well, no, 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 it was like a timely. Okay. It almost looked like you were looking at a photograph from another time. The way that the light was shaded and whatnot. It looked dated in the best way. I don't remember that. I just remember things looking very real and natural. They um, did, but there but was... in like a cleaned up, shiny kind of way. But there was this shade. They didn't use harsh white. Mm-hmm. So the shade that they used made it look like it was of the 40s. Like we were warm looking... Warm white. They... <laughs> warm white. I'm sorry. I. But like it looked like it was... Like you were, you know, when you see video from like the 80s or 90s and you can tell it's from like, or even like the early 2000s, you know, and it just looks different. Like you can tell it's dated. It looked that way. And to be able to have that effect through the lighting, mm-hmm. I thought was really great because I felt like I was transported back to another time. Mm-hmm. But it didn't look like grainy or something like that. It just the way the lighting was done. It really helped to depict the show. In the time period that was taking place. So I really appreciated that. Oh, yeah. Um, and it helped bring out the costumes as well, which I think is what we should go to next. Yes. They were absolutely gorgeous. And it seemed like no expense was spared. Oh, my gosh. They were just so detailed and ornate. There's the dresses and gowns. Look, I'm a sucker for this time period with the dresses and the gowns oh, God, and the suits. Yes. And if I could live in any time period, it would be this, except with all the social issues. But, I mean, seriously, these... These tailored dresses were absolutely gorgeous. Um, I, I love a good cinched waist and everything of that sort. And these beautiful hats that they had. Um, and like I said, the suits that were amazing, that they just fit so well. I think, if I remember right, Saunders even had a pinstripe suit at one point. I'm look, thinking way back. I do remember that Tito had a scarf and a really beautiful velvet robe. Um and the wigs were really beautiful. Oh, the hair was gorgeous. Um, though there is, I mean, well, maybe we'll get to it in a second. But the one thing I will say is I know the show was done, you know, 11 years ago. And, and I don't think it was right even then. But I was not, and still I'm not, a fan of the blackface. Well, and uh, there's a lot to unpack here with this part. So in 2019, I was involved in a community theater production of this as the hair and makeup artist mm-hmm. and or designer, and I did not want us to use blackface. We discussed going in a direction of a self-tanner, which, um, you know, I thought was a good compromise, um, but it still ended up turning into darker, darker, oh my god, it's blackface. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't think that it's relevant to the story. And in order to understand why it's even in the script to begin with, you have to understand um, a little bit more about opera culture because doing blackface or yellow face or red face is something that is definitely like heavily uh, done in opera and has been for centuries. And so the fact that, you know... We have to talk about this and address it not only in our pop culture references where we're referencing these things in opera, but also to address them like, do we need to be doing them in 
operas as well. Um, and so like one thing that I got to be a part of, um, this is kind of off tangent, but I was a part of a ballet production where, um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was, oh my gosh, what was the name of I can't remember, but I know what you're talking about. The Ballet de Russes by Balanchine, where it's done in a very Southern Asian style. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was traditionally done with yellow face. And we had someone from the Asian community, I can't remember which specific um, uh, Asian background he had, um, but we had this big discussion about yellow face and what its purpose is. And there's a difference between doing yellow face to depict race and doing ornate makeup to to determine culture. Um, you know, and so I think that that being said, I just don't think that there's a place for blackface, and I don't think it's there. I've heard some people argue that it is a necessary thing for the pratfall of this um, comedy, and I just it isn't. It isn't. Yeah. I think that we can definitely have that mixed identity of you know the, the, Tito and Max being mistaken for each other without doing blackface. That's where I come in with that because I'm like, are we doing? Do we actually perform Otello? Because that's the thing. Is anyone who knows Shakespeare, Otello is is black. Mm-hmm. You know? Do we actually see the production of Otello get done? No. So you've got two types of audience members. You've got option A, an audience member who's familiar with Shakespeare and is going to be familiar with um, the works of him. And familiar with Otello and know that Oh, that role is supposed to be played by uh, an African or you know, not a an person African, of color. a person of color. Thank you. And so the fact that if we didn't have Tito or Max be in blackface, they would recognize why and they'd be okay with it because they would know. Oh, they were supposed to be Otello, but you know um, that's not socially okay. Or number two, you've got an audience member who doesn't know anything about Otello, and they would know they wouldn't know the difference. And because we don't do Otello, that's fine. I don't think the blackface does anything to add to the um, story with the exception of it creates a mask that fools everyone. Right, but here's the thing. You get them in identical costumes, in identical um, hair, and honestly, if you cast them where they have the same build or similar builds, you can suspend your disbelief and see how they could think. You could use an eye mask of some sort. Well, you don't even need an eye mask. You don't need anything on their face if you have like a big bushy beard. Yes, 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 yes. Something like that to to, to disguise the face a little. But you don't need blackface. And I just, I don't think there is a place, and in my opinion, there has never been a place for blackface in the theater. I don't think that that art form, bless you, I don't think that that art form has ever served anything but to continue further in racial stereotypes that 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 don't that kind of hold down people of color that it doesn't it doesn't do anything but put down uh, an entire culture right and you can yeah there's just there's no reason for it it doesn't add to the story and i i will this will be the hill i die on Mm -hmm. like it is not essential to the story and listen in an era where we all have worn hats and masks all at the same time and all you're looking at is a person's eyes and eyebrows, it's really easy to infuse one person for another. Yeah. And especially if you take the circumstance, if you are a realist in your directing style or your, you know, theater style, like, everyone's, there's enough chaos going on 
that yeah they're gonna fall for it because there's just so much happening that they're not gonna pay attention to oh wait your eyebrow is different like no that's not well if you want to get creative just for hoots and hollers it's i just had this thought you could do a revival of this and you could have them in a mask because of covid 19 mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah no i just blackface has no place never had a place and it needs to not be encouraged and that to me when we saw this i was like oh if you're relying on the color of the makeup on the actor's face to make this believable then you're doing it wrong it literally is something from a different time that has no place yeah yeah um that aside the costumes just looked really well put together i thought it was great moving on lastly to direction in comedy it's all about timing it's all about naturalness and honesty and it's something that is really, really hard to do. And with that being said, it takes a certain kind of person to be able to accomplish this and accomplish it well. It takes an even a better person to be able to direct that, to teach someone, to harness that. And I say kudos to Stanley Tucci for being able to achieve this. The comedy was so well executed and so perfectly synced. I mean, I, we, we've mentioned this already, but it, we, it, it's worth mentioning again, like, Seriously, comedy can't be taught. Either you have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's very hard to explain to people why stuff is funny. Like, I've been told by some people, you're a funny guy, I should stand up, things like that. And I go, well, I can't really write a joke to save my life. I'm kind of an observational humorist. And they said, honestly, the reason why sometimes I'm funny is nothing's funnier than the truth. Mm-hmm. Honestly, the truth is the funniest thing in the world. And... Getting that across to some people is the hardest thing in the world sometimes. You know, making them understand, like, it would be funnier if you really reacted this way. The audience would respond better than if you over-exaggerated this way. So this was that perfect balance. It hit in that sweet spot where it wasn't too outrageous, but it wasn't just underwhelming. And that was, that's just good directing all in all, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. The show has had uh, had several well-known players, including Tony Shalhoub and Jennifer Laura Thompson. So now let's talk about the impact this show has had on theater and its history. So... It's a great American farce. And I think that's something to be noted because I think with the word farce, it's usually applied to British writings and British works. And I have to double check that. I think I remember a farce is usually a British comedy of sorts. French? Yes, that's the one. Wow. I'm sorry. Look, I went to college and I know everything. I was like, um, I'm pretty sure the French farce was well, the root What am of... I thinking of? There's a British... I mean, uh, noise is off. Is no, that no, no, no. I can't. Of? It doesn't matter. It's okay. But anyway, it's a great American farce. It is farce. farce. Um, and it's a beautiful marriage also of both play and music. And I know that everyone's going to immediately be like, so it's a musical. No. It's a play with music. music. And actually, if you watch the Tony Awards... When they have the award for best music written for the theater, that's not, and you notice like there are plays written or nominated for that. It's because it's not just musicals. Those tend to be orchestrations that they get nominated for. 
Mm-hmm. But the best music written for the theater tends to go to plays because there's a lot of music in plays like Harry Potter and the Crystal oh, Child that album is, is amazing. amazing. And it's good that we have it now because we have both mm-hmm. shows now. That Anyway, um, or One Man, Two Governors who had an entire like sideshow that went on during it. Um, mm-hmm. This, you had a lot of opera going on that was done by the cast mm-hmm. in between or in scenes or whatnot. And I thought that was a great marriage because that music, like a musical, helped further the show. Um, plus, I mean, to get operatic quality, true opera quality performances in the middle of a play is just awesome. I mean, it's a nice treat. And it's a perfect show for a lot of young amateur actors to be introduced to or uh, introduced into the theater. Right. Well, especially, I mean, it's great for new theater goers to see because it's like, hey, you know, yeah, you might have heard of Hamilton or Wicked, but it's let's just a see this fun play yeah. and it's going to be relatable because it's funny. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> As for societal impact, again, this is just a great escapism piece of theater. It came out 2010. Again, we mentioned in our previous episode about escaping from the recession and from war in that this is just a really great escapism piece of theater it doesn't really serve any societal other any other societal purpose you know it's not bringing to light any social issues it really just is there but for the grace of escapism um for the grace of comedy comedy and finally is this show relevant this is a great show for high schools and colleges and communities and regional houses but that being said I think there are better vehicles to provide an escape to audiences via the Broadway stage. And my biggest issue with the show is, as mentioned before, the blackface element. If directors can find a way of getting around it or rewriting the script to omit it, then the show is more relevant. But in this day and age, and even before, for that matter, the blackface just has no place on stage. Now, I will say, the... um, What is it called? The... The, the, not sequence, um, the, uh, comedy of tenors, which supposedly takes place. The sequel. The sequel, that's the word I Yes, I ran that show. Yes, so did I. Yes. Um, so the comedy of tenors, I think, has all the amazing elements of Lend Me a Tenor. Without any of the blackface. Without any of the blackface, and there go, if you're looking for a great farce to That's... introduce comedy of tenors is going to be the better choice oh, and, so me. but i mean having the context of lend me a tenor is great but i think that the show stands on its own as it is and i like that version better purely because it omits the need for the blackface yes As promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So, We saw the show back in 2010. And actually, before we get back into that, I just want to mention that this was actually the first play um, I saw, I think, as kind of a, I don't want to say fully formed adult, but um, as a teenager at the high school we went to back in Salt Lake. When my brother was in high school, um, to a, uh, directed by the theater teacher there, a wonderful woman, Mrs. Adams, who inspired me and 
motivated me to go into theater. Um, yeah, she directed this play. And in fact, I don't really remember blackface in that play, but I also don't remember a ton about it, but I do remember it just being really funny. So I wanted to mention that. Um, but back to the 2010 production. I remember it just being wonderfully funny. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fantastically That's funny. That's all I remember, really. I remember it being the first show that we ever saw at the Music Box. Yes, and, and the I Music Box is another beautiful box. theater. Yeah, upstairs is gorgeous. There's lights with the, the well, and it's just simple and small and. Mm. And then I also the other thing I want to mention is I remember meeting Tony Shalhoub after the show, at the stage door, the gorgeous gold stage door, and he was wonderfully nice, mm-hmm. um, very very polite, very kind. Uh, kind enough to sign our playbills. And yeah, he just, it was wonderful. And I really enjoyed the show. So, yeah. With theater continuing to adjust to the new normal, we hope to see a new version of the show sometime in the future. I'm sure you'll be able to catch Lend Me a Tenor somewhere at a theater near you. We just want to take a quick moment um, to send, uh, if we could, to send our good wishes out to you all. We know that this year has been a chaotic one, especially as we've ended the year, and we don't know what the future may hold. But we are hopeful that it will be filled with love and peace and lots and lots of great theater. We hope that you will continue to do your part to keep our theater safe and open, and also do your part to keep yourselves and others safe and healthy. From all of us here at Stage Whisper, we wish you all a happy, safe, and prosperous New Year. Happy New Year. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Mela, U.S. Army Blues, Jesse Spillane, and Billy Murray.